Thank you for being here at this class. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm sorry that it's so crowded. I'm thrilled that it's crowded. Uh, some of you have particularly uh, a warm, welcoming lap, so you might want to offer someone a seat. But uh, we're going to stand up, and if there's any room at all, scoot in, and let's let people find a place. Let's all stand up. Let's start our day praising the Lord. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. All the day long. Hey, turn and make a new friend and say, I think God wants you to know how loved you are today. Do that. Before you sit down, tell your new friend, I think God wants you to go home and send your preacher to Hawaii. What'd you do? Um... So there's this great story about this couple that uh, are getting ready for this very, very fancy night out. It's one of those kind where you wear a tux, you rent a limo, get all decked out. They're very excited. The limo pulls up. So they're walking out the front door. And as they do, the cat runs in the house. Well, we already know God hates cats, right? And, And they do not want the cat in the house all night long. And so she says to the husband, you go and get the cat and throw it out, and I'll go and hold the car. So as she's walking down the sidewalk to the limo, she realizes, I don't want the driver to know the house is going to be empty all night long. So she says to the limo driver, if you don't mind waiting a few minutes, my husband just went back upstairs to say goodnight to my mother. So she gets in the car, and a couple of minutes later, he shows up, obviously perturbed, and says, Sorry that took so long. Stupid old thing was hiding under the bed and had to poke her with a coat hanger to get her to come out. And we all know the frustration of getting people to move where they need to be. But no one did more than Jesus. Because Jesus was calling people to move. We're doing this class called What Jesus Hates. And if you are uncomfortable with the idea of God and hate in the same sentence, listen to the first lesson. But there are some things that Jesus really hates because he hates what gets in the way of God's love. And I want to close with what I think is maybe the most important teaching because there are some things that Jesus really, really hates. And one of the things has to do with the way I think discipleship is being presented in most churches Today, So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're going to start there, and then later we're going to go to Luke 7. And we're going to read a passage that perplexed me for a long time, because it just didn't, quote, sound like Jesus. It's in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow. 
not far from here is the University of California, Los Angeles. And when I was a boy, the UCLA Bruins just were annually the best basketball program in the country, led by famous coach John Wooden. And uh, during three of those years that they won national championships, Wooden's best player was Bill Walton, who went on to become one of Wooden's hugest supporters and fans, but would admit during his college career, they had a number of clashes because Wooden was a well-known, deeply uh, devout, religious, conservative Midwesterner, and Walton was your typical West Coast, flower child, hippie, rebellious kind of young man. And, And Wooden had very strict standards of what you were going to be if you played for him. One of them was, for example, no facial hair. And so after a 10-day break, Bill Walton comes back, and he's got a beard. He says, Wooden walked up to him and said, Bill, have you forgotten something? And Walton replied, Coach, if you mean the beard, I think I should be allowed to wear it. It's my right. And Coach Wooden said, do you really believe that? And Walton said, yes, I do very much. Coach looked at him and said, Bill, I have great respect for individuals who stand up for those things in which they really believe. I really do. If you really believe this is your right, I would die for your right to defend your right. And Bill Walton said, thank you, coach. And Wooden said, and I just want you to know the team is really going to miss you. (laughs) In some arenas, you have to come to terms with the fact that you don't set the terms. And that's what I think the Luke 9 text is teaching. That Jesus has no use for discipleship marked by what I would call unradicalness. I know I made up a word, but it's a good word, and I'm going to use it. (laughs) Let me say three things about discipleship. Here's number one. Typical discipleship is half-hearted discipleship. Now, I know that Jesus' reply seems kind of rude in our text here, but context is everything. It says that they came up to Jesus while he was walking on a road. Well, now, it's not just any road. You've got to know the road he's walking on. And we know what road it was because just a few verses earlier, verse 51, at that time, as they approached him, for he was being taken up to Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So he has started on the road to Jerusalem, not to go to his coronation, but to go to his crucifixion. He's intentionally heading down a road with a cross at the end of it. That's where he's going. And on that road, heading to his cross, a path that's never going to be popular, some guys offer him terms for discipleship. See, what Luke is doing is he's illustrating what most of us want discipleship to look like. We want the person, we don't want the path. We want the crusade, we don't want the cross. Half-hearted discipleship is Jesus without Jerusalem. It's wanting Jesus only so far. It's discipleship that never gets so radical. But Jesus was never so desperate for recruits... That he'd watered down the terms if you would just join his team. So his reply makes it clear to these would-be recruits. He never invited anybody to follow him under false pretenses. He never had small print in the contract. 
He told you up front what road he was on and what was going to be at the end of it. Because he has no need and he has no use for phony following. There was an episode on the History Channel that uh, had this pawn shop in Las Vegas. Maybe you've seen it. And this guy brought in this violin. Seemingly he had bought a farm out in the country. It had a barn on it. And he's upstairs in the barn. He sees an old chest. And he opens up this old chest. And inside there's this very carefully wrapped violin. And on the violin is the word Stradivarius. So he takes it to the pawn shop and the guy says, I have no clue. So they go find the guy who is an appraiser of fine instruments. And they do research. And what they conclude is that early in the 1900s, there was a man who had built some violins and had put the word Stradivarius on the violins. And what he was holding was a violin worth about $500, not $5 million. Now, I tell all that because of one line at the end. The appraiser says to the crestfallen violin owner, just because something has a label doesn't mean that it's real. And in many cases, what we've done is we've taken discipleship and we've changed it. We've changed the terms. It was, we've changed it from radical discipleship to logical discipleship. Now, what do I mean? Here's, here's takeaway number two. Logical discipleship is bargained Discipleship. The people in our churches have a place for Jesus. They really do. It's just not first place. A more reasonable discipleship is available today. And my guess is it's being offered at your church and my church and most churches. And here's how we know. Because we're asking people to accept Jesus. You just need to accept Jesus. Which is a popular and well-received word. The only problem is he never used it. Jesus never asked anybody to accept him. He asked people to follow him. The nice thing about accepting Jesus is I don't really have to change much that's going on in my life to do that. I can accept Jesus and pretty much run my finances the way I've always been running them. I can accept Jesus and pretty much lead my family the way I've always led my family. It is Christianity without conversion. It's Christianity at a bargain. And bargained discipleship is idolatry. Because it lets secondary allegiances have first place. You see, this first disciple comes up and evidently his idol is comfort. And so Jesus says to him, don't follow me thinking your life is going to get easier. Remember what I said yesterday? Would you take the promised land if God wasn't going to be in it? How many of us are offering a gospel to people that basically says you need to accept Jesus so that your life will get easier? We're asking them to follow a man that's headed to a cross and we're promising life's going to get easier. And Jesus comes back and says to this guy, listen, God's creatures have more permanent lodging than God's son. That's who you're following. And the second, his idol was security. Let me go bury my dad. Now, doesn't that sound like a... 
decent requests, but here's the context. His dad wasn't dead, or he wouldn't be there. In that culture, it was understood, especially for the eldest son, one of your duties was to properly bury your father. If your father's sick, you stay by his side. And then when he dies, the funeral is going to last for seven or eight days, and you're in charge. You hire the caterers. You hire the professional mourners. You're in charge. If his dad was dead, he'd have been home with his dad. Here's what he's saying. Jesus, let me go home and stay with dad until he dies. Let me go home and make sure everything's going. And by the way, let me go home and make sure I get my inheritance. Because I don't know if I just leave you right now, dad's going to be too happy. See, the great delusion is if you put security before Jesus, you get both. Sounds logical. It's really demonical. Third guy's idol was family. Let me go home and see if this is cool with dad. Let me get my family's blessing to follow you. And Jesus says, you sound like a guy who wants to go in one direction, but keeps wishing he was really going in another. See, he rejects the notion of delayed obedience. Delayed obedience to Jesus is disobedience. Because Jesus hates bargains. He hates discipleship on your terms. Now, I tried to illustrate this at home with a skit I wrote, and I didn't know how to act it out. So I brought a DVD. We're going to play it right now. I hope this works. I've never tried this before. But look at the screen, and this is how I tried to present the truth I'm teaching you now back home. Let me try to illustrate what I'm saying with the help of two of my friends, uh, Nakari and Wendy. They're going to play a couple of roles for me. Now, I've asked them to do this because they are particularly gifted as actors. And they're going to have to be because each of them has a big stretch today to play. Now, Wendy is going to play the part of a half-hearted disciple. And that's a stretch for her because I know Wendy and she is not a half-hearted disciple. Now, Nakari is going to play the role of Jesus, and that's a stretch for him. Because <laughs> I know Nakari, and he's a really good man, but he's not Jesus. And we're going to do two scenes here. In scene number one, we're going to act out what typical, logical discipleship looks like. And then in scene two, I think we're going to try to portray what I think Luke is saying. Tell Wendy that I want her to simplify her life. She's putting things in front of me. I want her to downsize, start tithing, and prepare herself for mission opportunities I may have for her in the future. Okay. Hey, Wendy. Yeah, Rick. I, I just got a word from the Lord for you. Oh, cool. He says he wants you to simplify your life. He is concerned that you're putting things ahead of him. Mm -hmm. So he says, you need to start tithing. Mm -hmm. You need to downsize. And, and get prepared because he has some exciting mission possibilities in your future. <laughs> no way. Man, that's asking way too much. I mean, you know, how about you tell Jesus this? I will start daily Bible reading and I will watch less TV. Yeah. Okay, I'll get back to you. Great. Okay, Jesus, she said that was way too much. She did say, though, that, that you've convicted her. She will start reading her Bible every day, and she will watch less TV. Hmm. That's impressive, but it's not enough. 
I'll back off the whole simplify your lifestyle deal if she'll read her Bible and watch less TV. But she has to commit to teaching Bible, Bible class to three-year-olds. Miss Patty needs help. Okay. Good news. Great. He, he said he, he will back off the whole simplify your life. Okay. Back off the whole mission field. Mm-hmm. He says, read your Bible every day, watch less TV, but you have to start teaching three-year-olds. Okay, I can accept that. But only if it's a two-year commitment and I have to have my summers off. Hey, is that a deal? You got a deal. Awesome. Okay. How many of you do that? Now, you don't do it out loud. You don't even think that you're doing it. But how many of us, if we feel a compulsion from the Holy Spirit in one area of our life that's going to cost and sacrifice, think, I I can't go there. I'll tell you what I will do. I'll find another area and I'll ramp it up. I I will ramp up in some area Jesus didn't mention because I don't want to go where he did. Typical discipleship. I think Luke was describing something more like this. Great. Tell Wendy that I want her to simplify her life. She is putting things ahead of me. I want her to downsize, start tithing, and prepare herself for possible missions I may have for her in the future. Okay. Hey, Wendy. Yeah. I got a word from the Lord for you. Okay, cool. He said, he wants you to simplify your life because he thinks maybe you're putting things ahead of him. So he said, downsize. Mm-hmm. Start tithing. Be prepared for possible missions in your future. (laughs) No way. Come on, that is asking way too much. How about you tell Jesus this? I will start daily Bible reading and I'll watch less TV. I'll get back to you. Great. Hey, Jesus, she wasn't very excited about that. She, She did say she would read her Bible more and she would watch less TV. If um, if I tell her that, you might lose her. Then I never had her. Okay. Uh, Wendy, the Lord, mm-hmm. the Lord has replied with three things. He says, number one, simplify your life. Mm-hmm. Number two, He doesn't negotiate. And number three, Jesus says, repent and follow me. Who does He think He is? And that really is the question. Who do we think Jesus is? Is he meek, mild, little Jesus with a plan for you to have a better life? Or is he King of Kings and Lord of Lords who's got a mission to reclaim a world illegitimately taken by the enemy? Who do you think he is? Here's what we're doing. We're bringing Jesus a list of our plans for our life and asking him to sign the bottom and call it that discipleship. And Jesus says, no, here's the deal. I'll fill in the page. You sign it even before you know what I'm going to say. And that scares us. Because we know Jesus isn't always reasonable. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. 
And whoever loses his life for me will save us. He's calling us to die so we can live. Logical discipleship is the lamest hobby you could possibly have. And it's killing us. Gary Hogan, who's the president and CEO of International Justice Mission, uh, dedicated to fighting sex trafficking, wrote these words. After we've poured into our children all the good food and shelter and clothing, after we've provided them with great education, discipline, structure, and love, after we've worked so hard to provide every good thing, they turn to us and ask, why have you given all of this to me? And the honest answer for me is, so you'll be safe. And my kids look up at me and say, really? That's it? You want me to be safe. Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens. And I think something inside them dies. And they either go away to perish in safety. Or they go away looking for adventure in the wrong places. And Jesus, on the other hand, affirms their sense of adventure. And their yearning for larger glory. You see, Jesus had his hand to the plow. And he said, follow me. Because he is trying to save us from the mess of unradicalness. See, here's point number three. Radical discipleship is normal discipleship. It's not for the select few. The kingdom of God is not a democracy and Christ doesn't rule by referendum. He's not asking for your support. He's demanding your surrender. That's one reason why I believe baptism was what he called for as initiation into his movement. You heard me say on Wednesday that some years ago I got to be in Zambia. And after preaching all day, we would take the people who wanted to follow Christ down to the Zambezi River. Now they've got a ministry in Zambia I've never seen before. I don't know if they have youth ministry or greeter ministry, but they have what we call the crocodile ministry. And the crocodile ministry is two brothers would take big sticks and they'd beat the water and crocodiles would swim off so we could baptize people. Which I will tell you right now will give your whole theology of immersion a gut check. But there was something about it I really love because I think the very act of baptism is Jesus saying at the very start, if you're going to follow me, get all in. No toe in the water, no splashing in the shallow end. I want you all in because I'm heading to a cross. When I taught this lesson, one of the things I did is I showed uh, the pictures of uh, some of our missionaries we supported our church in the country I can't even name because what they do is illegal there. And uh, they live in huts they built themselves. They get their water from a well three miles away pulled in by a donkey. When the women go out, they have to put on robes and cover everything but their eyes. Any food they make, they grow or they cook. It's a hundred and something almost every day. It gets down to 95 at night. They do have a solar-powered fan that they start in the evenings that goes out around 2 in the morning. But here's the thing. When they come home on furlough, don't insult them by saying, I just admire how you live so radically. They do not see themselves as radical disciples. They see themselves as normal disciples simply obeying where Jesus sent them. So I don't say you have to live that way to follow Jesus. I'm saying radical is normal. And if there is nothing 
about your discipleship that makes no sense to an unbeliever, then you've accepted Jesus, but you haven't followed him yet. Because there's something about the call to follow Jesus that will not make sense to a non-follower. And I don't think Jesus likes at all what we've done to his call. Because we've taken discipleship and we've turned it into give up your worst. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't play golf on Sunday morning anymore and you have to stop cussing. But when Jesus called people, he asked them to give up their best. Because he was a better treasure. His understanding of the kingdom is there's this treasure in the field and you will with joy sell everything to go have that treasure. And you know what? If Jesus is your better treasure, it's actually normal to do that. It only seems radical if you're constantly looking back over your shoulder wondering if back there is really better. So, I think I, that explains some of why Jesus could seem so abrupt with people who sounded like they wanted to be disciples. Jesus hates cheap watered down discipleship. Well, let me turn you back two more chapters now to one of my favorite stories. And for some reason, it's not one of the most popular stories in the Gospels, and I really don't know why, because I think it's just amazing. Because it's going to show you what happens when this crowd of people that are really following Jesus runs into a crowd coming the other way. Um, I'm amazed at the people that come to Pepperdine, especially young preachers who bring their little children. I admire them. I don't understand them, but I admire them. Uh, I read in Reader's Digest this woman whose husband was in the military and he was stationed in Germany. And so she's coming over and bringing the family to join him. They've got eight kids, 11 and under. She's traveling internationally with eight kids, 11 and under, to Germany. So they get on the plane, they make the flight, they get off, they're going through customs. And the customs officer says to her, do you have any uh, guns or drugs? (laughs) To which she supplied, sir, if I did, I'd have used them by now. (laughs) I can't imagine what's harder than traveling... That far with little kids, except one thing. That's a mom taking a trip with no kids. Especially when she had some. Look with me at Luke 7. Love this story. And this story, I think, is a powerful depiction of the thing that Jesus hates most of all. Verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And he approached the town gate, and a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. 
And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and he touched the coffin. And those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Do you remember the first funeral you ever went to? I do. I was in second grade. My father had two boys. His only sibling, a brother, had two boys and a girl. We were from central Texas area. My grandparents lived in Waco. We got a call one day. My only girl cousin, Pam, back then, I'm sure they outlawed them today, but back then, you remember they had those gas heaters that actually had the flames, and her nightgown got in that flame, and it just went right up that nylon nightgown, and she wound up in Galveston for two weeks at the burn center, and she died. She was six years old. The only, uh, only girl cousin, the only granddaughter in our family. And so uh, I remember getting in the car with my brother and my mom and my dad and driving from Dallas to, to Waco and going to Grandma's house, which has always been you know, the highlight of the world to me was Grandma's house, a little bitty little house in Waco. But my cousins were there, and it was just a happy place. And I remember Grandma coming out the door as my dad walked up the steps and just sobbing. And I'd, I'd never seen Grandma cry before. And then I went to the funeral, and my older cousin, his name was Butch, he was my hero. He just broke down. I'd never seen Butch cry before. I'd, I'd never experienced this kind of grief and just, just prevailing despair before. I'll never forget it. So you got these two crowds coming in different directions. And what do you do when you see a funeral procession come? Everybody knows what you do. You just you pull off the side of the road. Because death always owns the day. Death always has the right of way. So you just pull off on the side of the road. <laughs> Unless Jesus is leading the other crowd. He doesn't move over. Because Jesus never met a funeral he didn't hate. Isn't that true? All you ministers in this room, aren't all of us, aren't we trying to do our ministries like Jesus did it, except one thing, funerals? We don't do funerals like Jesus, because every time Jesus went to a funeral, he said, get up! Funeral was over. (laughs) It's interesting, we don't know the name of the lady. She's from a town called Nain. It's the only time it's mentioned in the Bible, and we don't know where it is. She is a nobody. She's from no place. And her future's going nowhere because she's got no son to take care of her. And in that culture, a widow with no sons was in bad shape. And she's already made this sad trip one time. But the last time she made this sad trip out to the cemetery, at least, his arm was around her. And this time there's nobody. And Jesus sees all this. And it's this wonderful little phrase, his heart went out. To her. 
She doesn't ask Jesus for anything. In fact, as far as we know, she didn't even see Jesus. You know the feeling. You've been in the back seat of the black car and you're going down the road. You don't even see the people that have stopped on the side. You're so obsessed with grief. Until this man does the utterly unthinkable, breaks every single rule of decorum for funerals in that culture. But he did it because he loved her. Because Jesus just hates funerals. Because he was deeply moved by the tyranny of death. The reason he didn't behave normally at funerals is because he doesn't think death's normal. Remember the story of the raising of Lazarus? Remember those powerful words in John 11? Jesus saw them weeping. The Jews who had come along with her weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where have you laid him? They asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Especially since he knows he's about to raise Lazarus. This is about to be over. Why does he weep? See, the phrase deeply moved is used elsewhere in Scripture to express the idea of anger and of indignation. Yeah, his heart was full of sympathy, but his spirit is full of rage at the consequences of sin. You see, we think death is natural. Death is not natural. Death is the result of a curse. The Bible says in Romans 8 that against its will all creation was subjected to God's curse. And Jesus, we don't, but Jesus could everywhere he went hear the groaning of creation. And he hated it because this is not the world his father meant. It's not the world his father created. We have become so seduced by and used to the fallen world, we think it's normal. It's not normal. Normal is no sickness. Normal is no biopsies. Normal is no crime. Normal is no pollution. Normal is no lawyers. Because you don't need them. Or policemen. Or surgeons. Or casket makers. And Jesus grieves a world that is so ab. Normal. Do we understand how wrong the way things are is? And so a lot of you are familiar with Joni Erickson Tata, powerful Christian witness who as a 17-year-old girl broke her neck in a diving accident and paralyzed then from the neck down. Now God's used her for a powerful ministry, but I still think if she could do it over, she wouldn't have made that dive. Part of the living with her paralysis is she can't feel. So she can cut her body or she can have a bruise and, and she doesn't know. She has taught herself to sense when her blood pressure goes up. And about three times a week she has an assistant named Francie. And Francie has to come in and lay Joni on a bed or a couch and take off all of her clothes. And roll her limp body across the bed looking for lacerations or bruises. Imagine the indignity of that. And Joni writes that one time she's just going through that. And she just looked up at the ceiling and she just said out loud, 
I want to quit this. Where do I go to resign from this stupid paralysis? See, we, we feel that, don't we? The, the, the fact that death always seems to have the right of way. But Jesus didn't. He had authority over death. And so look at what he does. Three absolutely shocking things. The first thing he does, he tells a grieving mother not to cry. Now, ministers, I do not recommend that at your next funeral. <laughs> to walk up to a grieving mom and say to her, don't cry. But Jesus did. You can't make a request like that unless maybe you are God. And then he violates every single understanding of cleanliness laws for the Jews. And he touches the coffin. These are not the actions of a man who's willing to accept what we call normal. You can almost hear him thinking, not this time, Satan. Because he didn't say, I will be the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then... <laughs> It's almost funny. And then he gives an order to a dead man. And death did what death always does with Jesus. It obeyed. And the boy sat up. Now technically this was not a resurrection. Technically this was a revivication. It was his mortal, not his immortal body that was raised. So which means he's going to age and he's going to die all over again, which I think is the ultimate bummer. <laughs> but the miracle of his revival, I think, is a picture of the miracle of our redemption. The Bible says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. Okay, let me go on a rant for a second. All you preachers that have sermons, God's part in salvation, man's part in salvation, tear them up. Right. What does a dead man do to save himself? Nothing. Nothing. Christianity is not offering a way for sick people to get well. It is offering a way for dead people to get life. And only Jesus and the power of the Spirit can do that. It is the only religion in the world that teaches the impossibility of self-salvation. But it can because Jesus can speak into anything death has corrupted. And where does he get this kind of authority over the consequence of the curse? Well, simple. Death doesn't have claim on a sinless man. Now remember, where's Jesus going? Jerusalem. He's going to the cross to put death to death. Sin's got to be paid in the currency of death. Only a man should pay. Only a perfect man could pay. And so Jesus, the perfect God-man, is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to take the curse on himself. And every legal claim that death has on anybody who's in Christ is going to get met. Back in 564 B.C. in the Greek Olympic Games, there's a guy named Erikion. 
two-time winner of some contests. It's kind of a combination of boxing and wrestling. He's in the final match, and his opponent has him in a strangle, a life-threatening stranglehold. So Arikion, in a desperate measure to free himself, grabs the guy's ankle and dislocates it. And in sharp pain, the guy throws up his hand to quit. And a few moments later, Arikion died. And because of the sequence of events, he became the only person in Olympic history that was declared the winner while dying. Here's what the Bible says. Since the children have flesh and blood, he do share their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives have been held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, in Jesus' death, death was killed dead. Biological death has not yet been removed, but it's been redefined. There's a powerful story. Some of you have heard of a famous old preacher from the last century. His name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now imagine this. He's driving his children to the cemetery where they're going to bury their mother. They're in the car with him. Here's what he says. I'm driving my children to the wife's funeral where I'm to preach the sermon. We come to one small town and there stood uh, in front of us a truck that came to stop before a red light. Biggest truck I ever saw in my life. And the sun was shining on it at just the right angle that it took its shadow and spread it all across the snow on the field beside it. And as the shadow covered that field, I said, look, children, at that truck and look at the shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by, the truck or the shadow? And my youngest child said the shadow couldn't hurt anybody. He said, that's right. Death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over Lord Jesus. Only the shadow has gone over your mother. See, when Jesus died, he didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. Everything necessary to condemn condemnation. Everything necessary to defy the curse. Everything necessary to refute normal was accomplished. Paul said in Colossians 1, he's the first one who was raised from the dead. So in all things, Jesus has first place. Jesus was pleased for all of himself to live in Christ. And through Christ, God has brought all things Back to himself again. Things on earth, things in heaven. God has made peace through the blood of Christ's death on the cross. You see, I I think our view of what happened at the cross is too small. The Bible says something cosmic happened at the cross. Yes, your sins were forgiven at the cross, but it's so much bigger than that. At the cross, normal, the new normal, was started on the way. Because Jesus is going to make everything right again. Why do we have these stories of being raised from the dead? Why are they important? The gospel authors, they want us to see a foreshadowing, an unveiling of the kingdom, a glimpse of what God intends for all creation. Again, Romans 8. Against His will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death And decay. Jesus hate the curse. 
He hated the curse. And he's going to redeem everything affected by the curse. Colossians 1.20, through the Son, then God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. Do you understand that? That we're not going to be spirits floating up in some clouds. There's not going to be one single molecule of God's good creation that Satan will be able to say he corrupted. God, through Christ, is getting it all back. The curse is going to be completely cursed. There's a guy named Greg Fisher that taught in West Africa Bible College one time. And one of his students said, well, it says when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a loud shout. What's he going to shout? Well, none of us know. But here was Greg's guess. He said, I think he's going to shout, enough! Enough. Enough death. Enough divorce. Enough rape. Enough sickness. Enough corruption. Enough cancer. Enough. And there's this little line in the story. You know how you've read something in the Bible a hundred times and then the hundred and first time you see something. And this happened to me. What does it say? The, the boy stood up and he began to talk. And then it says, And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Do you realize Jesus is going to give us everything back? Have you buried a child? Jesus is going to give them Have you lost your mate? Have you lost some of the best years of your life in chemo? Everything the curse destroyed, we're getting back. Jesus is going to give us the world God always wanted us to have. We're going to get it back. I know when you read the headlines, it's hard to believe what I'm saying. That's one reason why the Bible says we have the Holy Spirit. He is a foretaste of this future glory. And so, Joni says that Francie left the room. And then she stuck her head back in and she said, I bet you can't wait for the resurrection. And Joni wrote, my eyes dampened again, but this time there were tears of relief and hope. And I squeezed my tears and I dreamed what I've dreamed a thousand times, the promise of the resurrection. And the flood of other hopeful promises filled my mind. When we see Him, we'll be like Him. The perishable shall put on the imperishable. The corruptible, that which is incorruptible. That which is sown in weakness will be raised in power. He's given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And I opened my eyes and I said out loud with a smile. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Luke closes a story with this line. They were all filled with awe. And they praised God. Because Jesus didn't just hate the curse. He beat it. And so we should do what they did. Let's all stand up and let's close this way. There is beyond the azure blue